And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a Monday afternoon. The World Cup is starting. What's up, Croatia? Repeat finals run at minimum coming up. And But we're not going to talk too much about soccer except for this. France and all you French fans, don't think I forgot that BS handball that turned the World Cup final in 2018. Penalty kick, France goes up in the locker room, 2-1. We, I'm using we, would have won that World Cup if not for that penalty kick. But what's past is past. We're coming back for more. Kevin Pelton, how are you? I'm doing well. As someone whose teams are the U.S. and Italy, I don't recognize the 2018 World Cup is happening at all with, with apologies to Croatia. You know, look, sore losers are sore losers. What can you do? <laughs> what can you do? Uh, we are at the the quarter mark almost of the NBA season. We're approaching the quarter mark. So it's time. It's time now. We've settled in. We've seen enough. It's the first time where I feel comfortable discussing awards. And there's only one award that I really care enough about to actually discuss at length at any point in the season other than the end of it. And that's MVP. And I just hope, I just hope that all these guys stay healthy because we could have a legit, like rollicking four or five man MVP race at the end of the year where you could make a legit case for that many guys. Too many MVPs end up being if not unanimous, like borderline, like oh, unanimous, we all know who's going to win. Or it just comes down to two guys and it just becomes this vitriolic. You like this guy, so you must hate this guy. You like this guy, so you must hate this guy, which was Jokic and Embiid last year with Giannis just over in the corner. Like, hey, I'm still really good. Might be the best guy. No one really cared. Uh, this year, we have a whole slew of candidates. Could be really interesting. I feel like every time we hit the halfway point or the quarter mark like this, Something bad happens. Multiple guys get injured and it just gets winnowed down to two or one. But let's hope not. So we're going to go five to one off of our actual, you know, did you have a vote last year, Kevin? Yeah. So are, so you had an MVP vote last year. I had an MVP vote last year. You fill out one to five. You get five slots. You don't get seven. You don't get nine. If your favorite guy is not on the ballot, it's because we hate them. It's just because you only get five. So we made our fake ballots for the quarter mark. These are non-binding. They don't matter. If you think I'm going to remember who my quarter mark ballot was tomorrow, let alone in April, you are sadly mistaken. I will forget this as soon as this podcast is over. But why not? It's fun. I did my whole Vorps and Schnorps spreadsheet with all the advanced numbers is here and ready to go. And uh, let's, ju let's just do it. Kevin Pelton, let's go five to one. Who's number five on your fake MVP ballot? Well, I guess, can I first digress by asking you a question? One of the things I was looking at as I was doing this is how many players would you be surprised if they won MVP? And I think that list has got to be like six or seven this year, which is, speaks to what you're saying about how wide open this race could be. Because there's, there's I think, three guys who are not on my MVP ballot who I, I would not be surprised if by the end of the year they were at the actually the MVP. How many would I not be surprised if they won? Right. Like how many, I think how many legit candidates are there? I think we're probably, if you're being generous, I think we're probably at seven, seven to eight legit candidates, some of whom have waxed and kind of waned already. Some of whom are injured right now, including John Morant uh, and may fade a little bit. But I, I do think I, I, I do think there's a clear top three. And I wonder if we ended up with the same top three, but we'll get there. Maybe you disagree. Um and but after that, there's a whole slew of guys, and there's going to be guys that are not on these ballots 
fake ballots that people are going to be like, whoa, that guy's not even that guy's not even at the top five for MVP. With that said, go ahead. Number five. Number five for me is Kevin Durant, who, you know, has been in this conversation at this point in this in last season. I think two years ago, he already had had injuries by this point or was sitting out back to backs. Uh, and then he was one of those players who faded from the conversation, unfortunately, last season because of the injuries he had. But, you know, to keep Brooklyn afloat, I I thought kind of his I, I felt like his comments last week about the light, starting lineup that he was playing with were actually it was kind of shockingly underplayed in this modern media climate for him to come out and say, like, hey, look at these other guys I'm playing with. What do you expect from us? Like that was that was pretty harsh, I, I felt like. But. He's kept Brooklyn afloat. All of a sudden, Ben Simmons is starting to play like what we envisioned Ben Simmons could play like. Don't do Brooklyn. it. Don't suck. Don't get yourself sucked in. Don't do I it. Mean, I mean, I'm not picking them to to win the championship or anything, but like, could they be outside of the play-in? Yeah, that's possible. And if that's the case, and Kevin Durant continues to play at the level he's played at this this thus far and stays healthy, then yeah, he probably ends up on the MVP ballot, right? And that's the other thing. We're so early in the season that with some exceptions at the low, low, low end of the standings, I didn't really even pay attention to records like people. If it's like Steph, for instance, the Warriors are eight and nine and I can hear people. Oh, you can't give the MVP to someone on a losing team. Then you look at the Mavericks after a poo poo loss to the backup Denver Nuggets last night without Jokic and Murray. They're nine and seven. There's like no qualitative difference between teams at that sort of middle squeeze of the standings. So the Nets are eight and nine, also sniffing 500. Their announcers were very excited. Oh my God, they could claw back, claw their way back to 500 after a uh, win over the Grizzlies without uh, John Morant, Desmond Bain, and Jaron Jackson Jr. last night in Brooklyn. Here are Durant's numbers 30, 6.6 rebounds, 5.3 assists, 53% shooting, 33% from deep, 59% on twos. They are about even with him on the floor and minus one with him off the floor. So the differential that you would want for a, a quote unquote value MVP isn't quite there. But then you look with Durant without Kyrie plus four per 100 possessions, Durant without Simmons and Kyrie plus three per 100 possessions. And then you just talked about like the fact that this team actually still exists and hasn't been contracted and or relegated to the G League over the last three weeks is, I think, a testament to him. And what he did with those aforementioned players, with all the attempt, we illustrated it on NBA Today, with all five defenders just keyed in on him, the passing, the difficult shot making. He's totally bought in on defense. He likes these guys. You can tell he loves Wantanabe, who's a fantastic story. Utah Wantanabe, I think they showed last night, is 16 of 21 on corner threes for the season. And he's just letting it fly off the catch, contested. This is a guy who in Toronto, made a couple appearances in my 10 things column as a like and was very clearly a good basketball player if he developed a workable jump shot. He appears to have answered the if, and he's just good. Joe Harris is coming into form. Seth Curry's coming into form. And Ben Simmons, oh boy, last two games. Looks like Ben Simmons. I mean, I'm not being facetious. He looks like Ben Simmons. And he's, and he's, he's taken one more dribble instead of pulling up early and passing early when he should trying to finish when he should, hit a couple hook shots. You can see the vision of the team coming into form. And every time I say that sentence to you or in my head, I begin to throw up a little bit. I can feel the vomit coming up my esophagus and towards my throat because I just, how can you trust, how can you trust this team to be functional 
for for two weeks. And the other thing about Durant's MVP candidacy, Kevin. So I'm gonna I have him fourth. I have him fourth on my ballot. I have him higher than you. So I will preface that by saying this. I'll preface this by saying that I have him higher than you, partly because he leads the league in minutes, which which matters. He's already played like 250 more minutes than some of the other guys that are in this conversation. Do we care that he requested a trade and asked for his coach to get fired? Can you can you win the MVP and and do that? I guess I guess you can. I guess it's in the past, right? It's in the offseason. I guess I guess we just erase it. it. Do we do we care that there's got to be some lingering tension because of that? Yeah, I think I, I don't feel like the the way the start that they got off to was because of those Kevin Durant comments and you know because of that trade request because of you know the the uh, reportedly asking for Steve Nash to get fired and. Since the season has started, it seems from the outside like he has been a a stabilizing force rather than a destabilizing one, of which there are many on the Brooklyn Nets. So I, I would say no, it didn't factor into my my thinking at all. So you had Durant fifth. Yes. I had Durant fourth. So I will now reveal my fifth spot on my fake, non-binding, completely irrelevant quarter pull MVP ballot. Checking in at 29 and a half points, 12 rebounds, and five assists per game for the team with the second best record in the Eastern Conference, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who I had fifth, maybe the front runner for defensive player of the year. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. I think there is going to be a no. groundswell of support for Brooke Lopez. I was going to say. Um, his teammate who has been outstanding. And it sounds crazy for Giannis to be fifth. My guess is you have him above, above Durant, do you? So he you got him off ballot. the ballot entirely. So I will say my fifth spot came down to Giannis and two other guys who are going to come up in this conversation. And I just sort of shrugged my shoulders and said, all of them have played about the same amount of minutes, missed about the same amount of time. I just shrugged my shoulders and said, at this stage, I'm going, I'm going with the guy whose team has the best record of those three and who's played the entire season without option B or whatever you want to consider Chris Middleton, plus a whole pile of other guys. Um, explain. I'm interested to hear why did you not have Giannis on your ballot? Because I, I, I think there's there's interesting stuff to dig into with his MVP case. I, I think there is. Yeah, I, I think the sense is when you look at, as you mentioned, their record, the injuries that they've had. Oh, obviously, Giannis must be playing at an extremely high level. And I think you mentioned this. Brook Lopez has probably not gotten enough credit for how well they've played. Another thing that factored into it is. When you adjust for strength of schedule, they've actually not been quite as impressive as it looks. They've had an extraordinarily favorable schedule to start this season, which is well-timed with the Middleton injury in that period of time that they spent playing without Drew Holiday as well. So that took a little bit of the air out of it for Giannis for me, but the big part of it is just offensively, he's not playing as well as he has in the past. He's at 56%. On two-point attempts, he hasn't been below 62% since Mike Budenholzer arrived in Milwaukee and they began playing this style. And you see declines across the board. It's really, though, you know, kind of the the pain attempts that aren't at the rim and the short mid-range attempts, which are the bulk of his, you know, mid-range attempts. Those two, he's not shooting as well on. And long-term, I'm not concerned about that. But if we're picking most valuable based on a, you know, 15-game sample, then that that does matter to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. That's why he's he's fifth on my ballot and not on your ballot. And look, I've voted for him twice. I almost voted for him last year. We all love Giannis. And by the way, do we can we all just agree that the latter thing is not a thing? Can we do, do we do you care about the latter thing? I do not. 
I can we thank you. Then let's move on. The ladder thing's not a thing. Goodbye, ladder. Just keep the ladder up. And don't take people, don't take the ball. How about that? Don't take the ball from people. Anyway, um, you nailed it. The numbers are the numbers. And in addition to 56% on twos, 22% on threes, he's shooting 58% at the line, thus the ladder. That's much lower than it's been in recent years. His turnovers are up. Their offense is about the same whether he's on the floor or not, which is to say bad. The Bucs are 23rd in offense. They're 24th in half-court offense, and they're last in transition efficiency, according to Cleaning the Glass. At what point do we worry about this? Because my, my take has just been, wake me up when they have the team and they have their most important ball handler in, in Middleton. Are you worried yet? Because the half-court offense has obviously been their sort of one constant, if not weak spot, question mark against the best defenses. Are, are you worried yet, or are you just in wait-and-see mode? I'm not for a couple of reasons. Number one is everything you mentioned. Also, we haven't said the name Pat Connaughton, who hasn't played this season and might be one of their five best players. The number two factor is when you look at sort of shot-making on second spectrums analysis relative to what you'd expect factoring in the quality of the player and not just the type of shot that we're talking about the in terms of shot making thus far the los angeles lakers are number 30 relative to what you would expect and that we'll see if that's a sign of aging with some of their key players the milwaukee bucks are number 29 so they've they've they haven't necessarily been unlucky because they've also gotten the benefit of some really poor shot making on the other side. They've basically been playing out last year's uh, Boston series where it became a rock fight game after game throughout this NBA season. I think eventually their games are going to get a lot more offensive. Their defense isn't going to look as good and their offense is going to look better. But uh, that's why I'm not concerned about their half court offense. Those two factors. They are team rock fight. I mean, some of their games, it's a struggle for them to create open shots. Other than, you know, their threes are generally pretty good, like Brooke Lopez catch and shoot threes. But there is a lot of like throw the ball to Bobby Portis in the post and hope that he can create something. And God bless him. Bobby Portis has freaking killed it in Milwaukee and proven that his one on one game is a workable source of just we got to scrounge something offense. Drew Holiday, by the way, 44 percent overall, 34 percent from threes and just an underrated roller coaster ride as a player. For a long time, Drew Holiday was just like the most underrated player, period, in the NBA. For a really great two-way player, his decision-making on offense will just malfunction for like four straight minutes of a random game. It'll be like, why did he just take that fadeaway 19-footer with 18 on the shot? What is that pass to nobody? It's 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 kind of a, he's had a few games like that recently. Okay, so you have I have Giannis five and Durant four. You have Durant five and who four? Shea Gilgis Alexander. Oh, coming in hot, Kevin Pelton. <laughs> I absolutely love it. He did not make my ballot. He is absolutely on my short list. And I thought about just sliding him into the five spot. I can't believe he's fourth. That means he's over. Oh my God. Okay. Make the make the case because I love this so much. Everyone is like is talking about Shea. Oh my God, he's such an unusual player. He's really hard to guard. Who are they going to trade him to? We'll get to that. I hate that conversation. Um, what a wonderful story in Oklahoma City. And I look at you and I'm like, is this guy just maybe a flat out just superstar, context independent? I mean, this is an incredible story. So go. 
Yeah, uh, I liked what uh, I think it was Tim Bontemps. I, I hope I'm not shorting Ben McMahon on this one said on the or maybe it was McMahon on the Hoop Collective last week. Like he's the kind of player that you tank for. So they don't need to necessarily tank. They've got, I think, another one of those guys in Chad Holmgren who's going to be coming next season. But the way that Shea Gilgis-Alexander has been playing this far, he can be the engine of a contending caliber offense. And he's doing it without a ton of floor space in Oklahoma City. The fact that they've played as many small lineups, five out lineups as they have, has helped juice that a little bit. And it's kind of remarkable and a testament to Mark Dagnall's defensive scheme that they've not suffered more defensively doing that. But somehow still in the midst of that, Shea Gilgis-Alexander has found room to get to the basket over and over and over again and be extremely efficient at a high volume. He's basically married the efficiency that we saw two years ago in his shortened season when he shot really well from three with the volume that we saw last season when he was not nearly as efficient as a scorer and the combination of that is a high-level player. And then the other factor that kind of pushed him over the top onto my ballot is, and this is a tricky one to value, especially at this point in the season, but clutch shot making. We've seen the you know the step back three to win the game in Washington. The other big shots that he's down, hit down the stretch. Uh, if you look at the unpredictable.com win probability added model, he's number two overall behind a guy who is higher on my list. Uh, this is this is why I have you on because I'm not looking at the unpredictable win probability model. It's not on my spreadsheet. It I did I just forgot that it existed. So thank you for bringing that up. Shay, it's, it's not one of the schnorps. It's not a schnorp. Um, 31, six and five on 53% shooting, 41% on threes. Whoa, boy. Watch out. Keep an eye on that. 55% on twos. And like you said, considering the volume, that's a really high figure for twos. And there is just, I said on TV last, last week, it guarding him is like trying to catch a fish with your bare hands. You just can't. You can't find him. You can't figure out what he's doing or where he's going. One side of his body appears to be going slowly into the right. The other side appears to be accelerating and going left. You're like, what is this person? Is this like the the term that the what is the the T one thousand from Terminator two? Like, I, I don't understand him. And he's just at the rim. It doesn't matter who you put on him, what scheme you play, whether you switch to keep him in front of you, he's going to spin and burrow and jab step and spin again. And he's then he's at the basket. And once you're at the basket, it's like a 60-40 proposition. The shot is going in. With Shea Gilgis-Alexander on the floor, the Thunder are plus two per 100 possessions with an offensive rating of 113. With him on the bench, they're minus seven with an offensive rating of 103, which is basically like the worst team in the league. He's absolutely legit as an MVP candidate. And one thing you didn't mention, KP, his turnover rate is minuscule considering everything he is doing on this roster, a roster that, by the way, is in flux constantly around him. It's like, oh, they didn't start Josh Giddy in the second half of this game. I wonder why that happened. Oh, this guy got sent down to the G League. Oh, this guy's back up from the G League. And he just keeps on trucking. And I said this last week. I want to say it again. We need to stop. And we and we have stopped. I think we need to keep stopping. Never stop stopping. <laughs> what is that? It's pop star. Never stop stopping. Yes. Um, this this who's going to trade? We need to rescue SGA. Who's going to trade for SGA? Who has the picks for SGA? SGA is twenty four years old. Yeah, he's a little older than Chet Holmgren and all the guys they just drafted in the last two drafts. Who cares? 
He can be a part of their team when it gets good, which could be next year or the year after. He'll be 26. He's the only guy on the team. I mean, it's not inconceivable. It could be this year. Could be this year. That's right. Um, He's the only guy on the team that can get to the basket consistently. And without that guy, like Josh Giddy can't really do that because of his jumper. He's he's getting better at just driving into people and using his size to get into the paint. But without a guy who can consistently get in and kick out, you're just not going anywhere as a franchise. And he's the only guy that that can do that. And I don't I, I don't think he's unhappy there. I think if he ever becomes unhappy there, we'll hear about it. And from what I've heard, I don't I don't think there are any plans to trade him. I th- I think the Thunder are just like, you can call us. We're just going to take little notes of your offer, hang up the phone, and start laughing at you because we love this guy. And that's how it should be. I love that he's on your MVP ballot. Boy, oh, boy. Little pe- People don't forget. Some people forget. He's part of the Paul George trade. I mean, everyone focused on all the picks and the swaps, and I remember being like, man, they got SGA and Gallo, too. That's two pretty good players. Okay, so you have Durant and Shea. Anything else on Shea you wanted to hit? Well, on the clutch thing. So he's number one, number two overall in win probability added, number one in the clutch. And the one rant, something I've wanted to get off my chest is it feels like now when we look back and talk about the Russell Westbrook MVP season in 16, 17, I think that was, that it has been reduced to Russell Westbrook won MVP because he averaged a triple-double and no one had done that since Oscar Robertson. And the piece of it has gotten forgotten that, was so visceral in the moment is how amazing he was in the clutch that season. And that was a big factor in why I ended up picking him as MVP that season. So I, I don't necessarily know what to do with that because it's it's not a sustainable thing, but to me, that shouldn't be part of most valuable player. Like those wins you added with those clutch victories, they count. They're very important in the standings. And obviously a 15 game sample of Shea doing that or whatever it is, 17 games is not the same as Russell Westbrook doing it over a full 82, but that's, that was important to me. Well, and I know that that season, there were some on the fence voters who I think were leaning Westbrook and then leaned all the way after that late season game in Denver when he broke the triple-double record and hit a three at the buzzer to win the game, culminating a season in which he had hit a lot of big shots, as you say, and and there was a lot of voters who said, well, that's that's it. I mean, that's the guy. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes 
Hashtag vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. Okay, so now we're getting into the top three of your ballot which I suspect having gotten this far are not going to be the same as the top three on my ballot, but please reveal your third choice. Number three for me is Jason Tatum. He's sort of the most conventional MVP candidate in a lot of ways in terms of the best player on what has been the best team, what seems given the injuries that they've had and the the schedule that they've played relative to Milwaukee, very likely to me to be the best team at the end of the regular season. And look, Tatum has played well enough to belong in this conversation, independent of his team's record. You look at the contributions that he makes at both ends of the court, the improvement that he's continued to make offensively. He, he is, to me, to me, there's probably maybe a half tier that he's in all by himself in third above the SGA, KD, Giannis, some other guys tier, and then below my top two. I think we are going to have the same top three, actually. Oh, yeah. I, I also had Tatum third. Um, 30, seven and a half rebounds, four and a half assists. He's the best defender on your ballot, and he's probably the second best defender on my fake ballot behind Giannis. Just an outstanding two-way player. He has amped up his passing, even if the assist numbers don't show it dramatically. That team is just moving it and moving it, and everyone is making the right play. There are many fewer what are they doing here possessions than there were in the playoffs last year. They're targeting the weak defenders. They're using guard guard screens. They're running. They're shooting threes. Sam Hauser has a miss. How about Luke Cornett, by the way? Uh, is a lifelong Luke Cornett fan. I'm very excited to see it. It's me and Brad Stevens are atop the fan club, I think. Brad Stevens, by the way, um, the most on brand of all the cameos in Hustle. Have you seen Hustle? I have, yeah. Brad Stevens sitting there watching Wancho's character, Bo Cruz, play in some draft prospect workout and then arms folded, turning to Sam. I think it's turning to Adam Sandler and saying, he really impacts winning. I was like, <laughs> that. that's exactly what Brad Stevens did he consult on the script did he refuse to say anything funnier or more dramatic that's exactly what he would say and yes they they filmed that once they already had Juancho on the roster right i i assume that was the timetable i don't know but they do end up having Juancho on the team the Celtics end up oh, i shouldn't spoiler alert spoiler <laughs> alert hustle is a wonderful movie um what were we talking about Jason Tatum uh yeah, he's just he's he's playing super well on both ends of the floor. They're they're dominating the minutes. He plays with Jalen. He plays without Jalen. Jalen plays without him. They've just been a dominant team all the way around. He's the best player on a dominant team. If you had him number one, I wouldn't really have had a strong argument with you. Um, he's number three on my ballot as well, just because the top two guys are doing a little bit more with so far anyway, significantly less um, around them. And I suspect we are going to have the top two guys. The only suspense is um, what what order are they going to be in? So I had Tatum third. So that makes me Giannis Durant Tatum, five, four, three. You are Durant Shea Tatum, five, four, three. Give me two. Well, should we talk about the fact that Nikola Jokic is presumably not? I was going to do that at the end, but we can do it now. So, so. Jokic 
I got bad news for the Jokic haters out there. Just got bad news for you. You're, you, you think Jokic has fallen out of this debate. Clearly for us, he's fallen a little bit back in the debate. Um, because he's averaging 21 points a game down from almost 30 or whatever, 27 last year. You're like, okay, you know, he's easing his way into it. Yeah, he's got Murray, Porter, he's deferring. The Nuggets are kind of banged up. And what are they, 10 and 6 now? 10 and 6 are good, but not great. I'll tell you who the advanced stats say should win the MVP. <laughs> it's either Jokic or one of the two guys we're about to name. The Vorps and Schnorps, I might have to just rename it the Jokic spreadsheet because despite the decline in scoring, He's at the top of all of these advanced stats or, or first or second in all these advanced stats, whatever one you want to use. Plus minus this, plus minus that value over replacement player, box score, plus minus all the advanced stats. Love Jokic. 21, nine and a half assists, or sorry, nine and a half rebounds, nine assists on 61% shooting, 29% on threes. And that low number has, I think, and the low number, and we all notice there, right? We all notice when he doesn't want to shoot threes has kind of overshadowed the 67% on twos and the fact that Denver is plus 12 and a half per 100 possessions with Jokic on the floor and minus 15 with Jokic on the bench. I don't even know what to do with that. It's like a, it's like the on-off numbers on steroids from last year. I don't really even have a good reason to not have him in the top five other than the other guys are awesome. He's missed some games. His scoring's down. His defense is what it is. It's in the eye of the beholder. I think it's been a little bit worse this year than it was in the regular season last year. Why don't you have him on? So I don't think his impact on a game-to-game basis has been nearly as strong as it was the last two seasons. I was at the game in Portland where he finished with nine points. I think there was maybe one game in the two MVP seasons where he didn't reach double figures. And it felt a lot to me like pre-MVP Jokic, where he was still the most skilled, you know, one of the most skilled big men of all time, uh, potentially a dominant force, a guy who definitely translates to winning. But there were nights when it wasn't there. And the conditioning was an element in him, you know, getting to the point where he didn't have those off nights. And then I think he just felt like he he needed to be at that level with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. out of the lineup last season. So, you know, that those elements you know, obviously allow him to, I think, take a step back. As you talked about, his usage is way down. His efficiency is up a little bit, but not to the degree that would make him equally valuable. So, you know, my wins above replacement player metric does not have him in the top 10. It's not as enamored of him as, you know, Raptor, where he's still number one. Raptor is the 538 nerd stat, um, which is a one one size fits all number that exists and indicates who's the best player in the league it it did make me wonder a little bit like what it would take for Jokic to not be number one in Raptor but you mentioned the on off which is a big factor uh in that and you sort on the cleaning the glass uh garbage time adjusted stats by on off differential number two is your guy Sam Hauser who, who got mentioned earlier in this pod number one is Jokic by a wide margin and none of the other MVP candidates are actually that high in it I mean I think that's something that's going to kind of normalize as the season goes on but that was an interesting piece of information so the on off is always a tricky dance because you do not want to over reward a player relative to another player because player A's team is not good and the supporting cast is not good. And so you just you, versus a great player 
who happens to be the best player on a great team, a team that could stay afloat without that player. You shouldn't punish Jason Tatum would be the, the, the guy in this case. You shouldn't punish Jason Tatum because the Celtics are awesome and still have a positive scoring margin with him off the floor. You shouldn't over award a player like Jokic, whose team completely craters into dust with him off the floor. But I will say that's when I look at the at the on-court margin. And if the on-court margin, if it's like plus one on-court, minus 10 off-court, that's different to me than plus 12 and a half on-court. That figure suggests, not doesn't suggest, it shows you he's making them a great team. He's not taking a bad team and making them tread water. He's taking a team that hasn't figured out how to exist without him on the floor still and making them historically great in terms of scoring margin. And you just look the passing translate to the numbers. They get more shots at the rim, many more with him on the floor, more threes, more corner threes specifically with him on the floor. And they shoot better from all over the floor when Jokic plays, as you would expect, given his passing. I just still don't buy the defense. I saw the 538 thing has him as like, again, the best defensive player in the league. I get that he gets a lot of rebounds. I get that he gets a lot of steals. I don't buy it. I'll never buy it. I buy that he's not this sort of lumbering sieve that people make him out to be. Critics make him out to be. Embiid fans make him out to be. Some Embiid fans. I'm an Embiid fan too. Um, But teams are shooting 67% at the rim when he's the nearest defender. That's really bad. And just subjectively... I've seen more half-hearted waves at drivers this season than I did last season. I've seen a little bit less like attempts at emphatic verticality and disruption and more like, and just letting guys go by him. So I, I, I don't buy the defense, but look, I mean, if the Nuggets are a top two or three team in the West and the on-off splits are like this, he's going to have a good case. Yeah, and I think that's consistent with what I'm saying about his impact hasn't been quite what it was the last two MVP seasons. And I think when we talk about voter fatigue, this is the part that gets kind of undersold is that there's also an element where, look, if you're a player and you just won MVP the last two seasons, number one, that means you've played a lot of games in minutes. Number two, you know, it means that you've kind of reached those highest peaks individually. I think your goals start to shift. I, I think there's an element where Jokic is probably save you a little more for the playoffs than he did the last couple of seasons. And that's an element in why he's not as valuable that, you know, sometimes gets attributed to voter fatigue. And he's also, I think, consciously saying this star player just got back from injury. That star player just got back from injury. I got to get them going, reintegrate them, rediscover sort of how they get their looks off me and get this machine humming And I do think at full throttle, that starting five works really, really well. The lineup with Bruce Brown in MPJ's place for defense works really, really well. Bruce Brown has been everything Denver wanted and more. Shooting well from three, running the point with Murray Hurt last night and Jokic Hurt. They win in Dallas, rebounding, defending every position. It remains bizarre to me that the Nets made almost no real attempt to bring him back. Um... And I'll tell you, man, I know he's been one of my pet my pet little guys. I just don't understand why Zeke Naji doesn't play more. Like he, I understand that they're deep and they have Jeff Green and they have DeAndre Jordan, and he kind of splits time between both those positions. And DJ's actually, for all the comedy at DJ's expense, he's been okay for Denver this year. I would really like to, to say that he's been 
immobile and mummified and not good. He's been fine. Whenever Zeke Nagy gets on the floor, it's like he just switched across four positions, got a stop and made a three. And it's like, okay, I don't know why. I, I, I don't really get why he doesn't play more. I like him. I mean, the other thing is you, you know what DeAndre Jordan is. You know what Jeff Green is. Zeke Nagy is still the wild card in that combination. So, yeah, from that standpoint, you would like to see more of him. More of him. I'll tell you what I love about Jeff Green. I think he's 36 years old, something like that. He's been in the league forever. Once every two games, he is going to uncork some hellacious dunk on like three people's heads. And you're going to, if you know, and you watch the NBA and you know that this old guy does this, you can see it coming when he gets ahead of steam and you say, get out of his way. And he just crams so hard on people. I, I love it. Jokic is not my ballot either. We have the same top two. I'm, I would bet my life savings on it. The only question is, what order are they in? Kevin Pelton, who is number two on your quarter mark MVP ballot? Luka Doncic. We have the same top two in okay. the same order. I mean, that's they, what I figured. Go, go, go on Luka, who's obviously 33 and a half points, nine rebounds, eight assists a game, 60% shooting on twos. And uh, it's exhausting watching him drag this Mavs team <laughs> around the floor for 48 minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's the second highest usage ever for a player with a true shooting percentage better than 0.600 in a season. And obviously that's become easier to do in recent years as offense has gotten better league-wide and the standard has gotten higher. But it's him and James Harden in, I think it was James Harden's MVP season 2018-19, and uh, are, are the two to do that. He, Luke is narrowly over that bar right now. I mean, I think the one thing that kind of pushes him down to two is kind of the inverse of what I mentioned with SGA. Unfortunately, because of the minutes load that he, and the usage load that he's carrying in the first half, Doncic has not been quite as valuable in the fourth quarter of games. And I think that, you know, that kind of difference, that that kind of nitpicking makes a difference when we're talking about one and two on the MVP ballot. But to me, the top two guys are in, him and Steph are in the same tier. Um, in fact, I, I was watching that Mavs Nuggets game and the fourth quarter was unfolding and it was unfolding. Then it was all the way unfolded. And I was like, where's where's Luca? Why is Luca not in the game? Jason Kidd sat him until there was like 4.30 left in the game. Now, I didn't think it was a dumb decision. The game was nip and tuck. It was a one-point game, and I think he was just buying him time. But you will seldom see a game in the balance like that and a coach keep his best, best player by a, a gazillion a, a, a gazillion miles on the bench for seven and a half minutes of the fourth quarter. The second quarter, he plays the whole first, the whole third. The second quarter rest was about five and a half minutes. So I kept waiting. Once the seven-minute mark hit, I was like, where's Luca? Where's Luca? Um, the numbers are the numbers. They're plus six per 100 possessions with Luca on the floor, plus one um, without him. Everybody shoots better off of his passes. I just, I don't really have a good argument for why he shouldn't win it, given that he is the everything for this team. The whole thing orbits around him. They don't really have an offense without him. He's posting up more. He's super efficient doing that. Um, I mean, we've all talked about it. He's a one-man scheme buster. There's just nothing you can do except hope the teammates don't do enough. And the teammates aren't doing enough. And I, I talked about the Mavs a little bit with Tim McMahon, not a little bit, for about 25 minutes last week. So I don't, I don't want to belabor it, but I do think the clock is ticking. And their team holding pattern this year, I think they're just trying to sort of see can we make the playoffs and 
maybe duplicate last year's run, get a couple favorable matchups, stay healthy. We have this guy. Maybe we get a little further than we think. Um, I don't know. What's your, what's your assessment of this team? What's your assessment of the Christian Wood um, experience so far? There's there's a there's a lot of polarization around the league about Christian Wood. You have a, a lot of scouts and, and front office people and coaches. Well, they're not playing him enough. They need to go all in with Christian Wood at the five as the only big man on the floor. Then you have the other side, which is he's just a losing player. And I understand why Jason Kidd isn't playing him. He doesn't play defense. He can't defend the five. He can't defend the four. He's going to take bad shots. Um, this trade isn't going to work out. They're going to have to move on from him. What's your assessment? I don't think he's a losing player. I don't think he's as good as his box score stats, particularly this season, which have just been monstrous when he's on the court. And are part of the reason why, despite everything we've just said about Luka Doncic and you know the, the disparity between him and the rest of the roster, Luka is one of those guys who does not have the amazing on-off differential this season, which has kind of been consistent throughout his career. It's interesting, but you know, I think we've seen this. You you've mentioned this. You know, it's one thing to do that in the regular survive those minutes in the regular season. I think this was talking about Morant. You know, it's one thing to play well without him in the regular season. It's another thing to do that in the crucible of the playoffs. And they were able to do it at times last year without Jalen Brunson. But, you know, this year's roster, it's it's hard to imagine that. And we saw what happened when they played Houston the night he rested and they just could not score. So in that context, like Christian Wood is the other way for them to generate offense. So especially if it allows you to rest Luca more, you know, I, I think run as much through Wood as possible. I To me, the big question is just, was Jason Kidd not on board with this from the start? Like, because as much as he seemed to be pushing back maybe against Christian Wood and the media and the fans in some of his public comments, the question to me is, is he also pushing back against the front office that traded a first round pick, granted partially to dump salaries in that trade, but also get Christian Wood? And then also the JaVale McGee signing just remains as mysterious to me now as it was then, maybe more so since he actually hasn't even played as well as he did in Phoenix. I think they're just they're just searching for rim protection. Um, they clearly have this um, on-again, off-again love affair with Dwight Powell where he goes away for a while because he's not a rim protector and he doesn't shoot threes. You know, okay, he's not a modern NBA big. Then they just get disenchanted with everybody else. Like, oh, Dwight Powell. Everybody loves Dwight Powell. Come on back in the line. Oh, Dwight Powell had 18 points. Everybody's like, see, this Dwight Powell consummate pro stays ready. And then it's like, oh, God, it's still Dwight Powell. Can JaVale, can you come back in and like block some shots for us? And Kleba's injured now. Um, you know, Kleba Wood, I think, is their best four or five combination. If they're going to play two bigs, I think that's the only, maybe the only answer really um, going forward. Um, I, I said last week with Tim, if they're worried about easing the burden on Luca, they should play Dinwiddie, Luca, and Wood together more. Jason Kidd doesn't want to do that. And and frankly, they're minus 23 in 43 minutes with those three guys on the floor. So I can't argue that he should do it. And I part of the part or all of the reason is defensively, he just doesn't trust it. He doesn't trust Christian Wood at the five. Christian Wood at the five with Luca on the floor has been wildly successful so far this season, according to the numbers. Uh, I would just, I think I would just do it more, let it fly and see what happens. But I understand the hesitancy and they're getting nothing from Tim Hardaway, 33% on both twos and threes. Uh, Bullock and Finney Smith are just, sometimes they'll score zero. Sometimes they'll score 10 once in a while, they'll score 18 and you'll celebrate Josh green, making a case for more minutes. Good for Josh green. He's a good heady player. He's made half his threes this year, 17 of 32 shooting 78% on twos. He's very selective. Very selective. 
Let's just let's reframe it as a positive. He's very that's, selective. That's how I'm going to describe my shot selection when when I played pickup basketball. I, but good for Josh Green because it was unfair to him the Desmond Bain comparisons. Like he wasn't the only guy drafted at Desmond Bain. Desmond Bain wasn't the only guy drafted after him. It's like that shouldn't be the litmus test for his entire career. First Sadiq Bay and then Desmond Bain. Um, amen. But there just isn't enough juice on this team right now. And, and that's that's with Dinwiddie and Wood having done their jobs offensively. It, it's weird that it feels like such a struggle. And then you look up and down the roster at the guys who you think would create offense for them from, from scratch or on the pick and roll. And it's like, well, they're all kind of doing their jobs. There's just not enough of them, I guess. I don't know. It's a weird, a weird team. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Let's discuss before we get to number one um, some of the some of the honorable mentions. Uh, John Morant, twenty-eight and a half points, seven assists or seven rebounds, six assists, forty-six percent shooting, just forty-nine percent on twos. Sneakily, just 59% at the rim for him. That's not great. 40% on mid-rangers. Defense, I think he's been a little better this year. Obviously, a lot better three-point shooting. And and to your earlier point, they're plus seven with Morant on the floor, minus seven with Morant off the floor. So that whole, like, well, they don't, do they really need John Morant thing? That's gone. That was never, I said all year last year, it's awesome that their record is so good without him. They're not going to be able to score without him in the playoffs. They could not score with that without him in the playoffs. He was honorable mention for me. Was he in the kind of honorable mention tier for you? Not quite a tier below that to me, but maybe I probably, I may have unfairly punished him for the fact that he happens to be injured right at the moment. So who, so give me an honorable mention for you. Maybe there were none. Maybe there were, who were some close honorable mentions for you? I Giannis obviously is not on your ballot. Jokic is not on your ballot. So other than them. Yeah. The other guys who were in my next tier just, Oh, well, we haven't talked about, let's see, uh, Donovan Mitchell was also, to me, even a tier ahead of Giannis. He was like the seventh guy, probably, if Jokic was the sixth guy. Uh, then uh, Devin Booker, I think, has to be discussed, mm-hmm. given his play. And Joel Embiid was the last guy I had on my inner list. Uh, Mitchell, 36 assists, four rebounds on 50% shooting, 41% on three. Killing it with him on the floor. Also killing it with him off the floor. Second most crunch time points in the league behind another guy who's on my honorable mention that's De'Aaron Fox for light the beam <laughs> let's talk about Embiid who's now going to miss it's what a bummer that he's out tomorrow against the Nets in the Simmons Bowl that's that's going to be an incredible atmosphere and Philly's going to have the skeleton crew 32 
10 rebounds, four and a half assists, 52% shooting, 27% on threes, a career best 58% on twos, 55% on long twos. And defensively, after a slow start, when he was out of shape by his own admission, I think, and recovering from some foot issues in the summer, he looks like Joel Embiid again. He looks like the all-encompassing, domineering force in the paint whose control of the game like radiates out 20 feet in all directions from him. He looks like that guy again. And I don't, I mean, he could win MVP. He might win MVP. And if he keeps carrying this team, now he's out the next couple of games, they said today, if he keeps carrying this team without Harden and now without Maxi, um, he's going to, he's going to have a groundswell of support and deservedly slow. What he's done in the last two weeks is ridiculous. Um, I don't really have a great, a great reason to not have him in the top three or top five. He was, he was like a, in that Giannis Jokic and bead group for me, other than they kind of got off to a slow start. The numbers with him on the floor are not like overwhelmingly great. Um, and his turnovers are back up this year, which has been a change from the past, uh, what what's your take on Embiid and also like how the Sixers can can cope without Harden and Maxi? Yeah, a little bit of a slow start, and that matters now when it makes up you know maybe twenty five percent of the games we're talking about. By the time we get to eighty two games, it's not going to seem nearly as meaningful. It's interesting because you know part of the appeal of having Harden and Maxi, like so many of these guard duos that we've seen around the league form lately is, oh, well, even if one of them gets hurt, we have the other. And unfortunately, the Sixers are in the worst case scenario where one of them gets hurt when the other is already hurt. And you have this period where you have to play without either of them. I mean, I think they probably have enough shooting to now go to like, uh, let's just put you know, four shooters around Embiid and, you know, try to cobble together an offense that way. And Tobias Harris is also someone who can step into a larger he's role been offensively. Injured too. He's been injured too. I should have mentioned he's out too. Yep. They're really, they're really, we might, we, like might, un- might, we might unleash the cork. We might unleash the Ferk <laughs> pretty soon. Uh, to me, the question is going to, and then you really need him. To me, the question is, how are you going to stay afloat offensively with Embiid on the bench and avoid overtaxing him during this stretch? Well, Montrezl Harrell has been working on his free throws and jump shot after the game. So hopefully he's ready to pick up the slack. Uh, uncork the Ferk. That's what it should be for unleashing Ferk on Korkmaz, who looks very dapper on the bench. He's a, he's a really sneakily good dresser. And he has the Euro beard thing where he just gets it to look like it's a week of growth all the time, which is a, a look that I'm very envious of. That's my analysis of Ferk on Korkmaz this season uh, today. You know what would be nice, by the way, for the Sixers? If P.J. Tucker took a shot every once in a while, P.J. Tucker, I understand his role. Three and D, stand in the corner, all that. He's taking it to a new extreme. His usage rate right now, the last time I checked, was 6.8%. It's on pace to be one of the lowest usage rates in the modern history of the NBA. And the guys who typically have a usage rate like of eight or under are like Mark Eaton, like just shot blocking, do nothing centers. Um, and PJ Tucker's like, dude, can you do something? At the beginning of the season, he was setting setting screens and rolling. Y- you have to do something. You can't do nothing. The show I mean, the- can't be about nothing. You have to do something. <laughs> um, 
two years ago, he was at 7%. And I think that was one of the reasons probably Milwaukee was willing to let him go after winning the title with BJ Tucker. And then last year, it bounced all the way up to 12%, which had been was the highest it had been in six seasons. So that's what's kind of kind of interesting. The, the warning signs that were there for PJ Tucker have, have returned this year. Just do something. Um, honorable mention, Paul George. I just, he's not really honorable mention. I just want to mention him. Just so just mention. We'll just call this category mention. <laughs> 24, 6, and 4 on pretty good shooting. Clippers, it, it, seem, it seems like the Clippers play a bad team. It, they've played the Pistons and the Spurs, it seems, 13 times this season. They just play bad teams all the time, but they are 11 and 7. I think they've stayed afloat without Kawhi and now with Kawhi coming back in limited minutes, largely thanks to Paul George. Um, Paul George on the floor, they're plus four per 100 possessions with an offensive rating of 111. Paul George on the bench, minus eight, offensive rating of 94. 94, to put that in perspective, is reaching just kick the ball into the stands on every possession and set your defense level of bad on offense. We'll talk about the Clippers another day. What's good? I just... It's a hard, it's hard to watch. Tracy Jordan, hard to watch. Clippers are hard to watch right now. You need to get Kawhi back going full, full blast. Um, and another guy I wanted to mention. I feel like we should kind of talk about how Anthony Davis's numbers are kind of what they were when he was with New Orleans, and everyone thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and it was going to be the most important trade in the NBA since Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Should we talk about that? Is Anthony Davis amazing again? What happened? I mean, he's played, he's kept them afloat during the stretch with LeBron James out of the lineup. So yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how well that sustains when LeBron comes back. Like obviously he's not going to have the the same level of touches, but if he can produce like that, it, it kind of starts to change the conversation a little bit about what's their ceiling this season. Uh-oh, does it? A little bit. 26, 12 rebounds. Two and a half assists. I'd like to see that higher, especially with LeBron out. 55% shooting, 58% on twos. And you look at the numbers, you're like, wow, he must be shooting pretty well on jump shots. No, his jump shot still sinks. He can't make a jump shot from two or three. It's all shots in the restricted area. And he's making enough of them. His defense has been outstanding the entire year. They're plus one, plus one total, not one per 100 possessions, plus one minuscule point. With Anthony Davis on the floor this season, which is amazing because they're five and ten and they've spent most of the season stinking up the whole greater Los Angeles area. They're minus 48 with him on the bench. LeBron is a team worst, minus 61 for the season. Did not make my mention list for all for MVP, by the way, LeBron James. I, he still doesn't look like Anthony Davis to me in terms of his quickness and sort of slitheriness with the ball, but the number is both traditional and advanced. Are are identical to what he was doing with the with New Orleans. Um, I I don't know if this is the Anthony Davis vengeance season that I predicted and looked like a fool for predicting, but but it's interesting. And to your point, they're five and ten. Five and ten. I can't believe we're saying the Lakers are five and ten. It's like they're five and ten. I mean, they were two uh, and ten a week ago. Their next games are their next four games are Phoenix. That's tough. Spurs twice. Spurs are just Spurs are very quietly, not actually quietly. Just no one pays attention to them. Uh, not trying to win a lot of basketball games. People are just sitting out all the time. Why is that guy out? Why is that guy even you know, blah, blah, blah. 
And then the Pacers, which is uh, poetic on a number of reasons, given their trade dalliance. And then, uh, and then they go on the road and then they come back uh, to the Nuggets and the Celtics. So the, it gets tough after these games. If they can sweep these games, somehow beat Phoenix, unlikely, but maybe nine and 10. They, I, I do think the conversation about the picks will change course a little bit. There will be some pressure from various directions to say, say see, we're, we're, we're coming back to life. No one's run away in the West. Like if we can get Buddy Heald and Miles Turner. Maybe we maybe we should do it. I, I they still are so far away to me. I don't. What, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I I still haven't changed off the position when we talked last April about them, and that was when I said that the first you know the first rule of being in a hole is quit digging, which is why I wouldn't trade the twenty seven and twenty nine picks, and that felt to me very prescient the first couple of weeks of the season. Again, if it's changed, it's only a little. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't go crazy if they are eight and eleven or nine and ten considering what their schedule is going to going to flip to after that stretch. But you know that there are going to be, I mean, look, I talked about that Chris Haynes piece last week uh, on, on uh, bleacher about, you know, LeBron and AD and how they want them to trade the picks for, for players. Like doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where that is coming from. Um, so that means both of us picked as our most valuable player, Wardell, Stephen Curry, Two-time MVP, one-time finals MVP, 32 points, seven rebounds, having his best defensive season of the of his career, I think. Seven assists on, and these are real numbers, I promise. 53% shooting, 45% on threes, 64% on twos. They are plus eight per 100 possessions with Steph on the floor and minus 17. With Steph off the floor, I got to say, KP, at the end, this was a pretty easy call for me. Steph Curry has been the most valuable player in the NBA so far. Yeah, I said earlier that uh, that it was it was unique among the MVP candidates, you know, to have the on-court, off-court differential that Jokic had. That, that was not actually, I misspoke there because Steph is third on that list. So he is the other one where his individual brilliance is reflected in his box score stats has been equally matched by his impact on the team context. And look, this one's not surprising. Everyone knows the Warriors starting lineups, their, their core lineups have been really good and that their bench lineups have been really, 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 really bad. And Steph isn't necessarily the reason for that defensively, the primary reason for it, but offensively, he is such a huge part of it. He is currently smashing his own record for the highest true shooting percentage ever for a player with a usage rate north of 30%. He had 675 in 2017-18, which was one of the Durant seasons. 669 in 2015-16 was the unanimous MVP season. And right now he is at 697. He is almost at the equivalent of a 70% two-point shot, like basically a Tyson Chandler shot every time he shoots while shooting as frequently as he does. It's it's truly a historic season thus far. There are just there he leads a bunch of advanced stats having overtaken Luka and Jokic. And it's it's just incredible to watch it's it's a joy and almost more than any other player in the league more than any other not almost more than any other player in the league 
the game entirely changes the second he steps on the floor. And I don't mean that he comes in and makes an impact like he like Jose Alvarado changed the game off the bench. I mean, the style, the geometry, the look, the feel, the entire structure of basketball changes for the Warriors when he is on the floor changes as a result for the defense who suddenly is just looking around in a panic and chasing five guys are chasing him at all times. It's just remarkable what he's doing. He had that one play against the Knicks on Friday that we, that they, JJ Reddick telestrated it after the commercial break where he drove, flipped a one-handed lefty underhand pass out to Draymond. And literally as he was throwing the pass, put his head down and started running toward the corner as he's made the balls out of his hands. He's already looking toward the corner and running there. And cause there was a screener there somewhere throws it to Draymond gets the ball back. It's a three. The Knicks just were, had no idea. It, it shows you just how unusual he is that he's been doing that for more than a decade. And teams are still like, Oh God, nobody followed him. Oh no. Oh. And then the shriek of terror from their bench when they realize who they've left open. Uh, an absolutely miraculous season so far for him. And like I said early, they're eight and nine. I really don't care at this point. The fact that they're plus eight with Steph on the floor, that to me matters more than their record. They're an elite team with him on the floor and they're starting to find their rhythm a little bit. I think we'll see. I mean, it's not like beating Houston on the road is is a great accomplishment. The Rockets stink, um, but Maybe they're finding the rhythm a little bit. Uh, Steve Kerr is staggering one and two starters with the bench now. I think that will help. It would help. Clay Thompson obviously caught fire last night. Um, that would help if the impatience with Clay. I, I've already told you, it drives me crazy. Like Clay's going to be fine. Shooting wise, he's going to be fine. Defensively, I don't think we'll ever see peak Clay again. But shooting wise, he's going to be fine. I mean, I do think it was fair. You know, the the conversation that they had with him. I think this was before the New York game, coming off the loss in Phoenix. Of you know, you need to trust the offense and make the the extra pass when you only have an okay shot as well. Because that was kind of the frustrating thing to me. Is yes, you need shots to get through this, but you don't need every shot necessarily. Well, Richard Jefferson called it during that Knicks game. There were two or three passes that he made coming off screens where he would have shot it. And instead, he dumped the ball. You know, two guys chase him because he's coming off the screen as Clay Thompson. Dumped the ball to the screener. And lo and behold, the ball works its way all the way around the horn to get a better shot for him sometimes. Yep. And those passes, and RJ flagged a road away. I was watching in the car on the way back from the airport late at night. I I, I was like, ooh, that's, that's the pass I want to see. And RJ flagged him right away on the broadcast. Steph Curry... It, unbelievable season let's spend 10 minutes talking about a feel-good story that is close to your heart kevin pelton a team that i have not talked about much on the podcast or in the column yet i've talked about a little bit in the column the nine and six going into tonight supposedly tanking but haha maybe not indiana pacers a team that you used to work for a team that traded demonta sabonis for tyrese halliburton and buddy healed last uh trade deadline in a controversial deal from the Kings perspective, at least we'll talk about that too. The Pacers are nine and six. They are seventh in offense, seventh. There are 30 NBA teams. Only six of them are better at scoring points so far than the Indiana Pacers who have played an angel food cake schedule, but still 21st in defense about right. They're young. They're bad. They foul a lot. That's going to happen in Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin. They have a legit foundational backcourt. Miles Turner is still on the team. Somehow, still on the team. 
Um, Chris Duarte hasn't played in a while because he's hurt. Are they maybe good, Kevin? I don't know if they're good, but it, it, certainly they are not tank worthy bad. Like the if they were, if you didn't know what we knew about the Indiana Pacers, at least thought about the Indiana Pacers coming into the season, you wouldn't be talking about them in, in tanking terms at all. At all, you would be thinking of them, you know, like the Wizards, a team that we sort of just expect to stay in the mix for the play in all season. I guess that's how I would describe this team at this point of the season, because you know there are some fluky in terms of their own shooting numbers but defensively their competence has been more surprising to me given what they played like after the trade deadline and there the numbers are not particularly fluky at all they look kind of legit yeah i mean if i hope you can be legit 21st in defense when <laughs> well but i mean last season after the trade de- after when Halliburton was on the court last season after they got him at the deadline they were in the 87th percentile offensively according to cleaning the glasses stats and in the fourth percentile defensively they were so bad defensively the last two months with miles turner out of the lineup i was gonna say it turns out miles turner helps yes 18 points nine boards three blocks a game for miles turner 55 percent shooting 40 percent on threes holding opponents to 52 percent shooting at the rim and nobody nobody can test more shots at the rim than miles turner in fact for the second straight season at least maybe more indiana's defense is built to essentially funnel people toward the rim allow a lot of shots at the rim and assume that Miles Turner can put out enough fires to make that scheme, if not workable, then survivable. And so here's my question to you, Kevin. Miles Turner has bizarrely almost advocated for his own trading <laughs> on Adrian Wojnarowski's podcast, a remark that um, drew some some reaction around the league um, and then has kind of said, oh, you know, I'm not. I could stay here. Like, I'm cool staying here. He's 26 years old. He clearly, like, I, I think he he's he had ambitions once of being a higher usage player. That's not in the cards for him in Indiana. I don't believe it's in the cards for him really anywhere. And he knows now I can get 18 and 10, almost 20 and 10, doing what I do. Pick and pop, play defense, blah, blah, blah. The Pacers are $17 million below the floor, not the cap, the floor. I'm giving it over under 12 and a half days before we hear rumblings that the Pacers and Miles Turner are at least open at the door for contract extension talks. Why would you not do that? What's the kick? Why do they have to trade him? I get that he's expiring. He's 26, so he's older than some of their players. What What is the rush to trade him? You beat me to this question first off, because I was I was assuming I was going to pose this question at some point in our conversation. I mean, I think it's a really interesting idea if you could give him their cap space in a a a renegotiate an extension situation and therefore pay him a declining salary in future years that is less than you would have to pay him as an unrestricted free agent this summer to retain him because you're with the Westbrook trade not necessarily looking like the same kind of, I mean, we'll see what happens there, but if that doesn't happen, suddenly you're not maybe going to have a great use of that cap space other than to buy down what you're going to pay miles Turner in future years, which is a win for him as well, because he gets that money now instead of the, uh, the time value of, of money down the road. So I think if you are making the case though, to trade miles Turner, number one, it's that you're selling high. He's shooting 40% from three right now. That would be the best of his career. He's been in the 33, 34 range the last couple of seasons. He's also healthy. Like 
we shouldn't totally take that for granted. That was part of the reason he wasn't traded at last year's trade deadline was the uncertainty about a foot injury for a seven footer, which the track record of those is not super great. A little scary. A little scary. Yeah. So that would be the case for making the move now. And he is, even though he's not massively older, like he's young enough to retain him and just keep him with this Halliburton Matherin group. But he is a little older, and by the time those guys are peaking, he probably will be late prime, if not out of his prime entirely. I don't think they're going to trade him for like one lottery or protected first-round pick and salary filler. I don't think that's going to do it. I think you're going to need to bowl him over with more than that. We can sit here and make up fake trades. You got to beat that. And we know all the teams that have inquired or rumored to be inquired about Miles Turner. The list is pretty long over the years. I think it's going to take more than that. If you offer me, I'm just making up a trade like Jonas Valanciunas and a top 14 protected Pelicans pick. I don't think that gets it done. As much as I love the fit with New Orleans, I don't think they're doing that. Could be wrong. Happy to be wrong. I will say this, though. There's a lot of posturing about that Lakers offer, right? Russ in the two first round picks, unprotected. Let's say, just say unprotected for Turner and Heald. Well, would the Pacers do it? I don't know. They're playing pretty well with the Lakers offer both picks. With the Lakers offer both picks is is a different conversation. I don't know. Right now at five and ten, they shouldn't and probably wouldn't. If they do, just posit if they do. I have said before the Pacers at the very least, even if they're winning, have to have a meeting about that. Those those picks are that valuable. Unless they continue winning at this pace. So let's say they slide back and they're going to be like a 38 win team or something like that, which I think seems reasonable, right? Like, that, I don't know. Where do you have them projected? That's what mm-hmm. 538 has them at is 38. Yeah. Well, look at me, me and the computer aligned on the Pacers. Let's just say they, they, they are on pat on that path. If the Lakers actually offer those picks, I'm predicting now today, the Pacers make that trade. I, I just don't think they're going to be able to say no to both those picks. And again, that's if they offer it. Other than that, though. We got to talk about Halliburton. 21 points, 10 and a half assists. That leads the league. 49% shooting, 40% on threes, 58% on twos. They have the seventh best offense in the league. They get a ton of threes, a ton of shots at the rim, and they take the second fewest mid-range shots in the league. I think Tyrese Halliburton is on track to be an all-star. Maybe not this year, but if they keep winning, I think he will make it this year. It's just and, gonna be so tough with the number of guards in the East with DeJounte right. Murray and Donovan Mitchell both going over there. But I mean, he's like he's like a tier below the guys we mentioned for MVP. There is a chance that he's an all-star now. A very good chance, I think, that he's an all-star at some point. There's also a chance that he's like, I don't want to overstate it, but almost like a fairly transformative offensive player. That he's this good of a passer and a shooter. Um, and I think there's attempt like when the Kings and Pacers made that trade, I was the one it on this podcast and on TV, if not defending the Kings. I, I remember JJ Reddick was on with us on NBA Today, just trashing the Kings for this trade. Incompetent organization. I don't know what I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was to that effect. And I said, Can we just put the brakes on that for a second? Like, I understand I wouldn't have made this trade. Because I think Tyrese Halliburton is younger on a rookie contract and just a more fittable player can play with all sorts of different players, all different styles. Sabonis is not that. But Tamana Sabonis is like a good player. Like people were just like they like some scrub 
the Kings had traded for. He's he's a real all-star player. Even if he thought he was like a fake Eastern Conference all-star, you still he was even if you didn't think he was a top 12 Eastern Conference player. It wasn't like you thought he was 27th. He was 15th, 16th board. He's a very good player. That said, and I'm interested in your take on this, there's going to be a temptation now to say that's a win-win trade. <laughs> the Kings did did fine in that trade. Um, see, they knew all along what they were doing. Domas is averaging like 16, 12, and six assists. Playing hard on defense. Not particularly well, but hard. Um, I actually don't think I still think it's a trade I wouldn't have made in the Kings shouldn't I my thinking on it has not changed at all I think it was not a good trade for the Kings and it was a great trade for the Pacers it was less bad for the Kings than the anti-Kings critics thought but I don't think the Kings success like vindicates that trade and I can explain why but I'm interested to hear your take on it yeah what I was thinking as you were saying that before you said it's not a win-win is that it's worked is envisioned for both sides like Sacramento has put the team together that they thought that they were going to be able to put. De'Aaron Fox is playing awesome now for whatever reason. You know, it didn't seem like he and Tyrese Halliburton were workable playing together in the backcourt that they did have to choose one of those guys. They got a very good current player in return. They've been able to add some other young players on the wing to fill those Halliburton minutes. Kevin Herter is He's scorching hot thus far. But Looks that's great in a headband, too. Looks great in a headband with the red hair flowing over the headband. It's a great look. You know what maybe the comparison for is it right is right now, which is actually a trade that involved the Pacers when I was there as a consultant, is trading the pick that became Kawhi Leonard Oof. for George Hill. A pick that... Don't do it, that to the Kings. I mean, well, yeah, I, I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be that, but like that worked out well for the Pacers. They went to the conference finals back to back years with George Hill as their point guard. Like it, it, it's that, true compared to the average outcome for the 14th pick, a huge win, but it wasn't Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. Tyrese Halliburton's not going to be Kawhi Leonard, you know, who's a hall of famer, top 75 player, two-time finals yeah. MVP, all that. But I do think this sort of run of light the beam and the Kings. I did a whole Matt Barnes thing with the Kings last week. I think their offense is absolutely legit. They may be playing a tad over their head because they're, a, they're on the verge of overtaking Boston for number one in offensive efficiency And Boston. I don't think has missed a three, the entire season. Um, but I think their offense is legit. I think they're an absolute joy to watch the Kings. And I still all the things I felt at the time about Halliburton just being an easier fit, a better fit, and Sabonis sort of boxing you into playing a certain way on both ends of the floor, all that remains true. And I'm happy for the Kings that it's worked out in the short term, medium to long term. I still think it's a win for the Pacers because Halliburton is amazing. He's a really, really good player. Matherin's awesome. Um, Aaron Neesmith is showing some signs of life um, for them. Made some threes the other night. They have some interesting pieces there. The issue is compared to the other rebuilding teams. Now they have Halliburton, right? That's something that some of these other teams don't have a player quite as proven as Halliburton. Certainly the Spurs don't quite with, although Devin Vassell and Keldon Johnson have both made leaps. I think the Rockets hope that Jalen Green maybe has a higher upside than Halliburton. I, I think that's, I, I think it's, it's reasonable for them to hope that I'm not sure that it's reason it's it's going to play out that way. So the Pacers have Halliburton. They only have two future first round picks from other teams. They have Boston's pick in this coming draft, which is going to be poo poo. 
and they have the Cavs pick, which is lottery protected. And if they don't get it this year, it becomes two second round picks. So they really need the Cavs to make the playoffs and give them that pick. And that's the reason why kind of everyone thought, well, they're probably going to find a way to tank this year and make their pick, Indiana's pick, super valuable. Maybe the ship has sailed on that. I mean, I think it's going to be hard for them to get into that, you know, top three or four at this point. If they do end up trading Turner and Buddy Heald is also playing well, he's someone who seems more certain to be traded given his contract situation and the fact that their last two first round picks are wings. So you take those two guys out of the equation. You know, I think that does probably get them, you know, maybe in there in the eight or nine range going into the lottery. And then you're high enough that you can reasonably hope to move up if that's the way this ends up playing out. I believe Memphis moved up from eight to two in the Morant in the Morant lottery. The other guy we should talk about who nobody is talking about is Andrew Nemhart, who has been starting at shooting guard for them as a rookie. You know, I think the the early second round pick, uh, well, Chris Duarte has been out of the lineup. He's starting ahead of Benedict Matherin, which is kind of amusing given, you know, Matherin is the right in the mix for rookie of the year, but he's and six man of the year. Yeah. Uh, he's giving them some secondary ball handling alongside Halliburton. He's hitting 41% from three, which is wild because he hit 38% last year at Gonzaga. That was his career high. He was a 34% career shooter from the college line. So he's one of those guys who's probably going to regress in terms of his shooting. But uh, for him to be giving them quality minutes this early in his career, another huge win for the Pacers. I can tell you this. The coaches love that kid. They love him. He's a very clever player. He's the best perimeter defender in their starting five, probably by a lot. Was guarding Franz Wagner the other night against the Magic. Um, he's a, he, And they make very clever use of their guards. I wrote about this a couple weeks ago. They set a lot of guard-guard screens early in possessions to get the defense kind of off balance. And he he's smart about slipping screens and making plays out of it. They also, you mentioned Heald, who's obviously a great shooter. They use Heald in really smart ways, too. They run a lot of staggered screening actions with Halliburton and then Heald and Turner setting screens consecutively, either in that sort of Spain pick and roll alignment or just traditional staggered screens. That's just a lot of shooting, like running around the floor in unpredictable directions with a great passer orchestrating it all. If people haven't watched the Pacers, they are a blast to watch. They're fifth in pace. They play fast. They shoot a lot of threes. And Halliburton is just a really clever player. Rick Carlisle has them playing like a, a, a pretty pleasing, unselfish style. Okay, to review, Kevin Pelton's quarter poll MVP ballot. Let's see if I can remember it. Fifth Durant, fourth Shea Gilders Alexander. I just I'm so jealous of that. And then the top three: Tatum, Doncic, Steph in that order. So Steph is the MVP. My ballot. From first to fifth, I'll go first to fifth. That's easier. Steph, Luca, Tatum, Durant, Giannis. So we're we're close, and we have the same top three. And I do think that's the correct top three. That's seventeen to twenty games in, whatever it is. Steph Curry has been the MVP of the NBA. Uh, who was your finals pick before the season? Let's wrap with that. I went Clippers, Bucks. Me too. How do you feel about that at the quarter pool? It was interesting because we had a conversation about this back in LA in September when we were there for meetings. And I told you that I was leaning towards picking the Celtics over the Bucks at that point. And then everything that happened, starting with the Robert Williams surgery and then, uh, you know, the Emi Yudoka suspension happened. And that was enough uncertainty to push me over from Boston to Milwaukee. I would say the way that the, the Celtics have navigated that so far makes me lean slightly Celtics over Milwaukee again, but 
those two teams to me, you know, are, are dominant in the East in the way that no group of teams probably is. You'd have to get to like four or five teams in the West. Yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way. I, I feel I picked the bucks to win the championship and I feel fine with that. Given that Chris Middleton hasn't played yet. Connaughton hasn't played yet. Other guys have missed time. I do think they are trying to make trades to upgrade their team. I've mentioned Crowder. I was, I mentioned Crowder months ago as a, a, a target for them. We'll see if the Jay Crowder, sweepstakes which is just the the greatest the most ridiculous sweepstakes in the history of NBA sweepstakes uh we'll see how that ends up but Boston has absolutely announced itself as um if you were worried about us don't worry Tatum Brown we got this our bench is better than you thought Hauser's real Grant Williams has made a leap Cornette's given them minutes Brogdon has been in and out of the lineup but has been outstanding Derek White Shooting 46% on threes. Okay. Like if he can become, he's not going to shoot 46%, but if he can make and take enough, that changes their team. We saw what happened to him in the finals when he, and in, in even before that in the playoffs where he, his confidence waxed and waned. They look awesome. And I, Ramona said this last week or some, no, Malika said this last week. Boy, I hope we get to see them play in the playoff. Don't say it because every time we get all hyped up for like, Oh, can't wait for Suns Warriors. Oh, can't wait for Spurs Warriors. Can't wait for this. Somebody gets injured and something bad happens. And you know what? All these other teams are going to have something to say about it. So just, yes, they have been head and shoulder. They've been torso and head, head and torso, <laughs> head and knees above everybody else in the East. But just don't count your chickens before they hatch. That's all. But I, I feel fine about the Bucks. The Clippers are just like a, a human shrug emoji. I've seen this movie already three times oh are they gonna have any continuity what they're still trying to figure out their identity they got to integrate this guy they got to figure out their style okay i've seen it before just they just need their team and after that i'll feel okay about it but i don't feel great right now yeah i'm in the same position uh the norman powell struggles in particular i think are kind of concerning because i think people were penciling him in as that third best guy next to the pg Kawhi duo Starting to play a little better in the last 10 days. So I'm hoping that is a harbinger. Uh, John Wall has given them, I think, everything they could have hoped for off the bench. Kevin Pelton, uh, what do you got coming out? What, what, what can, what, what's coming out this week? Anything? Well, we'll see when it comes out. But uh, the, the plan is at some point to write about the team we touched on briefly here, the Sacramento Kings. All right. Light the beam. Kevin Pelton just does awesome work for us across many mediums uh thank you for your time and your mvp ballot and uh i'm jealous of the shade number four ballot spot thank you sir thanks for having me and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games call 1-800-DIRECT-TV claim based on total games carried on sports networks sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package terms or restrictions apply